Genesis. You get in trouble sometimes pronouncing things, but the Hebrew word for Genesis is Bereshit. Bereshit means beginning. The title of the book is derived from the first three words in the beginning. Bereshit. The book is part of the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, which scholars and tradition would hold, were written by Moses, the prophet Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a summary of Genesis 1 through 3. This is a little sentence maybe you can write down and tuck it away. I like summarizing statements. I like people to tell me. I like them to summarize for me exactly what is this all about. What's Genesis 1 through 3 all about? Here's the summarizing statement. Genesis 1 through 3 tells the story of a God who creates everything out of nothing in order to bless his people and glorify himself. This is a summary. Genesis 1 through 3 tells the story of a God who creates everything out of nothing in order to bless his people and glorify himself. Organizing structure of my sermon. Please remember to rewind. Five benefits of beginning at the beginning. Five benefits of beginning at the beginning. Five benefits of studying Genesis 1 through 3. Our study of Genesis 1 through 3 will do five things, I believe, for us. It'll do more than that. I'm going to try to give you five this morning. Five of the, 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 the primary benefits, I think, that we will derive from studying God's Word, the first three chapters of the Bible. Number one, a study of Genesis 1 through 3 will, number one, give us a great sense of God. It will give us a great sense of God. And you need that more than you know. Notice how Moses begins. In the beginning, comma, God. Now, when you consider how how we live our lives, you might have thought that the beginning of God's Word started differently. God's Word starts with, in the beginning, God. But you might think that it was, in the beginning, you. <laughs> in the beginning, humanity. In the beginning, put my name there. Put your name there. It's like, it's like right when we start at the beginning of God's Word, we're looking at photos from a recent event. Just as J. Russ talked about this recently. As soon as you see a photo, what do you do? You go searching for yourself. The, the photo of the Abbott's missional community just went up. The only person you were paying attention to in that photo was you, if you were in it. 
And we look at God's word and we do the same thing. In the beginning, how is this going to orient to me? What does this say about me? What does this say about us? And Moses begins by saying, in the beginning, God. Hebrew word Elohim, title of God. And if you will take count, and you can do this this week, if you read the first chapter of Genesis, you will find the word Elohim, one chapter, 35 times. Whenever God repeats himself, we would do well to pay attention. Whenever God repeats himself, he's trying to make a point. In the beginning, God, 35 times, chapter 1, this chapter is about God. The beginning is about God. Before we get to anything else, we have God. The beginning of all things starts with the activity of Elohim. God is at the center of everything. He's the controlling center of the universe. The fact that we live and we breathe and we move, we owe to the sustaining power of God. Everything begins and ends with God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Why is this important? Because right thinking leads to right actions. Right thinking leads to right actions. Right actions are preceded by right thinking. If you want to be a person who acts rightly, if you want to to live as a Christian, if you want to live as a follower of Jesus, then your actions are preceded by right thinking, by right theology, by right thoughts about God. Wrong actions. What the Bible refers to as sin always proceed from wrong thoughts about God. There's another devotional exercise for you this time, or this week. You can count up how many times you see Elohim used and then do this exercise. Think of one sin that you have committed in the last week and work yourself back to where it originated on a wrong thought about who God is. All sins, all sinful thoughts, all sinful words, all sinful actions can be traced back to an incorrect view of God. So what does God want to do? Right at the beginning, He wants us to have right thoughts about Him. There never was a time when God was not. He has no beginning and no end. God is not today what he wasn't before. I'm going to share some riddles with you. Or they'll feel like riddles. Because we can't hold these kinds of million-gallon truths in pint-sized minds. God won't be next year what he isn't right now. The God who created 
everything out of nothing was exactly the same God as he is right here, right now. There is no changing with God. All of his perfections are perfect at every moment. All of his perfections are perfect for eternity. He is what he always was, and he is what he will always be. Praise him. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. God is powerful all the time. And all the time, God is powerful. God is holy all the time. And all the time, God is holy. God is trustworthy all the time. And all the time, God is trustworthy. God is loving all the time. And all the time, God is loving. You need a sense of God. You need a great sense of God Almighty. Unchanging. Problem is, every person that I know is not like this. It's a problem. So it makes it hard for us to be able to understand and relate to God because the people that we relate to are always changing. And that can be, that's good. And that's bad. But we aren't constant in our character. I can't depend on you. And you can't depend on me. We're changing. We're fickle. We're unstable. And unless I intentionally remind myself of God's person and His unchanging attributes, I will think of God like I think of you in finite terms. I will think of God in false terms. How I treat you might depend on the kind of day I'm having. How did I have a good cup of coffee? Did I listen to the news? Did I have an easy commute? Do I have anything hanging over me that's creating trouble, uncertainty, or discouragement? Depending on how my morning went, I will show grace and patience and perhaps be kind-hearted to you. But if I have a bad morning, you might encounter some impatience in me. You might encounter indifference in me, an indifference that you can't detect, but it's there. When I'm not thinking right about God, then I start thinking that his relationship with me 
and how he treats me must be similar to the way that you and I treat one another. Uh, we do this, don't we? This is why we need a great sense of God. Don't you ever wonder? Maybe God's gotten tired of my failings. Most of us have particular sins that we struggle with and will likely struggle with, apart from the miraculous intervention of God, will likely struggle with a certain pattern of sins for the rest of our lives until He returns or until we go to meet Him. You ever feel like God gets fed up with you're not getting it? I can have those thoughts. Because I know what I'm like. I'll give you some time to change. But there's a limit to the amount of times that we'll put up with one another. Does God have those same kinds of limits? Does His patience ever run out with us? Thanks be to God that He is unchanging in His affections. When trials come my way or pains that are seemingly avoidable, don't you look at your trials that way sometimes and say, you know what? This one seems like God just a little bit of shift just a little turning of the dial here and we could be in a much different situation and I would be happy. God, why won't you turn the dial just a little bit more? Why won't you change these circumstances? And when we have thoughts like that, we can quickly conclude that if he has the ability but doesn't do it, then he must not be loving. He must not care about me the way he used to. Or the way that I thought he would. Our faith operates from our theology. What's theology? A fancy word for our thoughts about God. Our faith proceeds from our theology. Our faith operates from our sense of God. We have to think rightly about God if we're going to have faith towards God. If you're going to exercise the gift of faith, it, it's going to be exercised proceeding from right thinking about God. In the midst of frustrating circumstances, which many of us are enduring right now, or even unbearable pain, I might not have answers to the why, but I know the who. You, you, may, you may never get an answer. But the Word tells us who He is. When we can't trace God's hand, we must trust God's heart. We must trust who He is, who the Word tells us who He is. When we can't trace, some of you all are going through circumstances right now where you're trying to trace God's hand and it's like a calculus problem. You can't trace it. What do we do? We trust his heart. 
We trust His heart. We trust Him believing that if we knew what He did, we would pray prayers that would be in accordance with the accomplishment of His will in us. When darkness hides His lovely face, I rest on what, church? You know the old hymn. Unchanging grace. Moses wrote in another place, one of the Psalms that he wrote, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, considered one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, said this. this. This quote has stuck with me for a long time. I think about it often because I'm a preacher. He said this, I can forgive a man a bad sermon. Some of you, I hope, will be gracious to me (laughs) and have forgiven me for bad sermons. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of of God. If he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate in himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, and the magnificence of the Gospel, if he does that, I am his debtor, and I am profoundly grateful to him. My job is to try to preach in a way that gives you a sense of who God is. It's not to be first philosophical. It's not to be political. It's to give you a sense of of the great glory of God, which we see every time we open His Word. We need to be continually reminded of who God is. We need to have fresh glimpses of His greatness. Genesis 1-3 through is going to give it to us. It's going to give us a great sense of God. That is the first of these five benefits of beginning at the beginning. And let me put you at ease. The first two will take me a little longer. The last three will be somewhat short. So first, what are five benefits of beginning at the beginning? First, it's going to give us a great sense of God. Genesis 1-3 through will give us a great sense of God. Number two, it will provide a foundation for understanding the rest of the Bible. It will provide us with a foundation of understanding the rest of the Bible. Just in three chapters, we are going to get some major themes that, that... that run through all of Scripture. We're going to get creation, we're going to get the fall, and we're going to get God's plan of redemption. Right there in the first three chapters, and they run, those themes run through the course of the entire Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. Significant implications is critical. We need to understand the first three chapters of the Bible if we're going to understand the rest of the Bible. 
If we don't understand the beginning, our, the understanding of the rest of it will be limited. Now, that doesn't mean you can't pick up and read from some other section of the Bible and get something out of it. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God speaks to us from His Word. But we will be better equipped to understand the gospel, to build this gospel culture if we understand what went down at the beginning. Its foundation, foundational value can't be overstated. It's going to help us understand the rest of our Bible. We shouldn't try to enjoy the Bible the way we would not and try to, try to enjoy any other book. Imagine if you showed up at the library every week, grabbed the book, randomly opened it up, and just started reading from there to the end. You wouldn't do that. The Bible is inspired, God inspired and, and used all these different authors and then put it together and preserved it for us, all of it holding together to tell the story of redemption. It all fits together. And so we want to begin at the beginning to make sure we understand. Bema, it's a Hebrew word. It refers to the to the elevated platform in the synagogues where the person who read the Scriptures stood. People of God didn't gather in buildings like this that faced a stage with an audience. That's a, that's a newer creation. And it lends itself to entertainment. Here we are now. Entertain us. I'm not up here to entertain. Even though we've set the seats as if we're performing a show, we're not doing a show. We're not performing a show. So, so the Bema was this elevated plat platform in the center of the synagogue where people gathered around it to hear the Word of God read. The gathering reflected what they hoped to be true of their lives. The Word of God at the center. Is the Word of God at the center of your life? Is the Word of God... Are you building your life around the Word of God? Is your life being shaped by the Word of God? Is your life being formed by the Word of God? Remember when Paul said, don't be conformed, don't be formed to the pattern of this world, but be formed, conformed to, to, to Christ, to the Scriptures. See, see, culture is forming you whether you like it or not. Culture shapes us. We live, eat, breathe culture. Culture's forming you. So we have to be intentional to read and study the Word of God so that the Word of God is informing us, is shaping us. Right thinking leads to right actions. We want lives that are shaped by the text. Right now we're in this, we're in this season where we've, I feel like we've identified our vision well. We want to love God, love one another, love our world with the gospel. And we've got a mission. How are we going to do that? We're going to reach people with the gospel. We're going to build them up with the gospel. We're going to release them with the gospel. That, that's our mission. Now we're giving thought to what are our core values? Like, what do we stand for? What do we want to see built in every 
disciple, every healthy disciple at Brandywine Grace. And so J. Ross is leading us through this process where we're identifying six to seven of our core values. One of the things we were just talking about is we want this, this idea to be captured in our core values. What idea am I talking about? Lives shaped by God's word. Lives that are shaped by the text. Lives that are centered around the word of God. You remember Plato, playing with Plato when you were a kid? There was a thing, my, my, there was like um, little, little features that went along with just the regular cans of Play-Doh, like you could upgrade. You didn't just have to have Play-Doh. You could buy different little things. You remember they had the barber shop and stuff? And, and, and there was something that we got as, as kids at Christmas. It was called the Play-Doh Funny Pumper. You remember the funny pumper? The funny pumper was like this, it was like this little uh, slide and it had these different shapes. Like it'd be a heart and a star and you would slide it up and then you would put a thing, you'd jam a thing of Play-Doh in there and then you'd push it through and it would form, it would shape, it would conform the Play-Doh into whatever form you pumped it through. You need to be funny pumped through the Word of God. This is why we study God's Word, that we would be funny pumped, that we would be shaped, that we would be conformed, that we would be, that our lives would look the way that God expects our lives to look in light of His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. Amen? Week after week, we're going to look at Genesis, just like any other section of the Bible. But as we preach through Genesis, week after week, we're going to frame doctrine and hang it in the walls of our minds. Frame doctrine. What do you do when you want to remember a great trip? You got some great pictures. You blow them up, and then you frame them and hang them on the walls of your house. And when you pass by those photos, what does it do? It, 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 it's, it functions to remind you. I love, I was just over at the Mahalik's house recently, um, and I, I was there by the kitchen, and I saw some index cards, like um, just scriptures uh, scribbled on there. I, th- I don't know, I think it was Kat, because the writing looked better than Gabe's, and I've seen Gabe's writing. And so so they were there by the windowsill, and they were, they were just there. They were stacked right there so that when they're doing the dishes, they could be funny-pumped through the Word of God. They could be reminded. Doctrine framed in an index card and sat on the windowsill where I could see it when I'm doing the dishes. I saw the same thing. If you get into Gabe's car, it's always a mess. But when you get in there, you'll see these chicken-scratched Index cards, you've seen them. If you got him to his car and, and he uses the phone holder, the iPhone holder, not for a phone, but for these index cards. And they're filled with scripture. And I don't think I've ever met a person who has more of God's word memorized than that guy. He's framing doctrine and hanging it in the walls of his mind. Who wants to join him? Who wants, to, who wants to frame doctrine and allow it to function as we hang it in the walls of our mind? When God's Word informs your life and your love, when God is your center, life is good. 
I don't care what circumstances you're going through. When God and His Word are at the center of your life, life is good. When we put our trust in Jesus, we can handle anything because He's promised to see us through to the end. All right, I want to give you three more and we will move fairly quickly through these. So we're talking about benefits. Ben the benefits of beginning at the beginning. Number three, it's going to consistently wade into today's hot-button issues. Can't get away from it. The old, old story has obvious contemporary parallels. We're going to hit some hot-button issues right here in the series, in the beginning. Only need three chapters to do it. We're going to be dealing with origin of the universe, creation versus evolution, human dignity, hot topic, gender, marriage, sin, and deception. And instead of doing what I see a lot of other churches doing, what I see a lot of uh, people doing on social media, chasing after issues, disconnected from the scriptures, let's go to the scriptures and see how scripture connects to the issues. Let's start with God. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, all of our issues. You with me? Some churches are like ambulance chasers. I don't want to be that. I, want to, I believe that we have everything we need right here at church. Does that mean we're going to agree on every single application of, of God's Word? Some of us have different views on creation. Let's not have a different view on creation. The fact that God created, there was a fall into sin, and He provided the solution in Jesus. These are things, this is orthodoxy, we agree, but, but we can disagree on certain things. There has to be room for disagreement on secondary, tertiary, lesser important issues. You with me? We're going to do our best because this is going to raise some questions and you guys are undoubtedly looking to your shepherds, your pastors to help you with this. We're going to do our best to equip you with resources that we find helpful to think through these hot button issues that are surfaced through a studying of God's word. Good? Number four. Fourth benefit of beginning at the beginning. It's going to put perspective on our lives without emptying them of significance. It's going to put perspective on our lives without emptying them of significance. What I'm trying to do here is marry two tensions. And the tensions that I see in Genesis 1 through 3 is there is a beauty. As God creates and as he creates humanity, it is a beautiful glorious story and so humans are portrayed in in beautiful ways but it won't be long in the story where we see the story turn into a horror movie humanity is both horrible and beautiful we're beautiful as we're created in the image of god we're horrible as sin has, has wrought havoc through Adam and Eve and then through us. By nature, we are sinners. Humans are wonderful 
and humans are awful. I experience it over and over every day. You do too. Don't you see humanity do beautiful things? Don't you see humanity do awful things? Another shooting yesterday. Another shooting in Dallas. I think eight people. No, no explanation. Five-year-old was killed. I mean, sometimes we can feel, like we can experience the, the beauty of, of a human And sometimes you can hate them. You can feel hatred in your heart for other humans. Fallen man is all around us. But we still see glimpses of beauty, don't we? Don't we still see beauty? I sat on my deck working on the sermon last night, and I heard so many birds that I was trying to pick them out individually. That sound, that sound, that sound, that sound. And it was just amazing. I was like, man, I couldn't make a record. Of, of the sounds that I'm hearing. There's this beauty still in a creation that's marred by sin, this fallen world, while people are dying of cancer, while people are waiting for bone marrow transplants. This world is so painful and yet so beautiful. And one day, God has promised to redeem it in its entirety. So Genesis 1 through 3 is going to put perspective on our lives without emptying them of significance. I think there's, this, there's another point I want to make here. It's easy to believe that we're living in the most important moment in history. So many of us do this, some more than others. You have this tendency to think that, that, that this is what's happening. Like when God looked down on eons of history, he said, right there where they are is the most important moment. That's how we act. We act like this, this is it. As if, like the time during Noah wasn't important. Or, or the, the, the time during the, the Peter and Jesus walking the earth wasn't important. We, we, we live with these, we live as if this is the most important moment in history. This is the moment in history that God cares about the most. Genesis is going to provide a bigger picture for you all, for all of us to see that though he loves us, we are really small and insignificant in the big scheme of things. America is just going to be a footnote in the annals of history, okay? We live here, we love it. And we should. We have a freedom that we enjoy. Nobody's in here stopping us from worshiping Jesus. Amen. We should be grateful for this. We should be thankful for this. But we shouldn't make our moment more important than the moment of the lives of others that are living in different places than us. We're not more important. God doesn't love us more.
Isaiah 40 just says the nations. What does Isaiah 40 say? The nations are like dust on the scales. This is what God says. Here's our hope. Not in us. In Him. God wins. And we're with Him. All right, let me give you the last one. The last one. The last benefit. Genesis 1 through 3 is going to point us to Jesus. <laughs> over and over again. You might say, well, the word Jesus isn't there. Genesis is going to point us to our Redeemer over and over again. And Jesus is there in the pages of Scripture. And we're going to look. I'm going to try to show you. Harder to find than in some of the New Testament epistles. But Jesus is here. I want us to see that the Old Testament is not all about angry God and the New Testament all about gracious God. He's the God of grace. He's not changing. We already hit that, right? Genesis 1 through 3 actually breathes the living grace of God. He loved us before the fall when He created humanity. He loves us after the fall when He set out a plan to redeem us. And we're going to see Jesus over and over again. Christ, the light, the creator, brings order to chaos. I've been in a season where I felt like I, I was not feeling close to God. Even though I was trying, I was reading my Bible, I just didn't. Have you ever had that? You've had that experience where you just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm looking to God, but, but I don't feel particularly close to God. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, we're battling some difficult things as a family, some, some, some trials, and, and looking to God for grace. A lot of people looking to me to, to try to care for them. We've got challenges all around us. And I got up. I was just praying, and I got up in the morning, and I, I was praying. I just woke up, and I thought, oh, Lord, I need you. See, that's the beauty. Trials tutor you to Christ. That's the beauty of suffering. It, it takes you to God. And I felt like the Lord say to me, Kenny, I'm going to bring a genesis to your life. What did he mean? I'm going to bring a fresh new beginning in the midst of this difficult time. Man, I needed that. If you haven't yet trusted Jesus for forgiveness, for for salvation, for freedom from your sins, and for uh, walking and living in a relationship with Him, Jesus wants to bring a genesis to your life. All you have to do is look to Him and receive Him. But even for those of us that have been following Jesus, we need, don't, don't scriptures tell us that His mercies are new to us every morning. We need a genesis every day. I need a new beginning, a fresh start every morning. This is what Jesus does. We look to Him and He will bring a genesis to our lives. In the beginning was God. In the end, God will be. Genesis is about God, the universe, and you. Genesis is about grace. May His grace abound to you and to me as we study these first three chapters of Genesis. Let's pray. The band can return.